0: Good morning. Good morning. Uh, the first line of the song that was just played was "Jesus, what a friend for sinners." Um, in fact if uh, some of the older hymnals that, that have that uh, hymn in it actually titles the hymn "Jesus, what a friend for sinners." And uh, that's honestly what we'll be looking at today. We're going to eventually be in John chapter 13. But we're going to start in John chapter 3. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. This is the fourth book of the New Testament. John, and we're going to be in chapter 3 to start off with. But eventually we're going to be in chapter 13. And we're going to start in verse 16. A verse that I would bet a lot of you could say by heart. But we're going to be looking at the verses after John 3, verse 16, to build a context for what we're going to be talking about today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And before we read any further... Some of you might need a Bible to read from, and I should have asked you that before. So if you need a Bible, we have some Bibles in the back. Um, If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll get that to you. Thank you very much. It's hard to follow in the passage when you don't have the passage in front of you, so it's good. So we're in John chapter 3. Thank you, ushers. Appreciate that. Verse 16, as we've just read, For God so loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world or to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment That the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. In this passage, John 3.16, we know, most of us know, right? Familiar text, but as Jesus develops it, he talks about this difference between light and dark and how to come to Jesus is to have one's deeds exposed by the light and to welcome that exposure. And yet those who would reject Jesus reject that light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Now I want us to turn to John chapter 13, just a few pages later, a few chapters later. This passage that we're going to be looking at today is perhaps one of the spiritually darkest points of Jesus and the disciples' ministry altogether. In fact, even just the atmosphere is described as it being night in verse 30. And that nighttime is more than just a physical description or meant to simply just describe what time of day it is. There is a foreboding here, what's going on. And what's going on is one of Jesus' close friends, one of his disciples, one of the professors of faith for years... One of his closest companions. Making a decision to betray perfection. If you've read older literature, you might be familiar with Dante's Divine Comedy. And the first section of that is Dante's Inferno, where he describes hell. And in hell, there's various layers or levels of hell. And the deepest, darkest place of hell, literally hanging from the jaws of Satan himself is one of the disciples of Jesus Christ, Judas Iscariot. This is a time where we have Jesus, earlier in chapter 13, taking upon him, actually the the physical appearance of the lowly servant, kneeling at the feet of the disciples and washing them, taking the role of the inferior to give them a lesson as to how they ought to love and serve one another, following his example. And as Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he didn't come to Judas and then just kind of skip them. That would have been a little obvious. No. Even the person who occupied the lowest level of Dante's Inferno had his feet washed by Jesus. Jesus. The main character in this story doesn't change in the sense that it's still Jesus. And I want us, as we read this passage, as we read a dark time, I want us to keep in mind what Jesus has just done for his disciples and what he will continue to do after this passage, namely, love them and instruct them on how they ought to live in the days when he would leave them. Keep that in mind, because what we will see today is what love looks like, like in the face of evil. This is what love looks like in the face of evil. And so, if you're in John chapter 13, let's look at verse 18. We're going to pick up literally right in the middle of, of Jesus' conversation that he had. After he had just washed their feet, he had instructed them, saying, this is what you need to do with one another have that attitude of humble, committed, loving service. But in verse 18, he says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking. And there was reclining at Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him And said to him, tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. So he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Ward, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you're doing, do it quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need for the feast, or else, perhaps, that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Let's pray as we begin, as we look into this passage, and God willing, as we become more like Jesus Christ through it. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for the word. Thank you for your love. Help us, Lord, to become more like your son as we read the word, as we're warned by the word today. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I said earlier, what does love look like in the face of evil? Jesus here is in the presence of Satan himself. This is the first time Satan's mentioned in all the book of John. He's mentioned by name here. And Satan's real. I know at Halloween, sometimes we kind of have an approach. I I say we, society, kind of has an approach to, to Satan and the occult, almost in a cartoonish way. And I'll be honest with you, I'd almost rather it be that way than what we read here. Because what Satan does And his activity here fuels the greatest tragedy, the worst crime ever committed. I mean, Satan is not just, you know, this one with horns and and a tail and a pitchfork. He's fueling the rebellion that ultimately would put God the Son on the cross for yours and my sin. What does love look like in the face of evil? Well, first of all, what it looks like is Jesus preparing the disciples, preparing those he loved for the evil that was to come. Okay? Let me say that again. What love looks like in the face of evil is Jesus preparing the disciples for the evil that was to come. And how does he do that? How does he prepare the disciples? Well, first of all, he prepares the disciples by reiterating his authority. Namely, by affirming who he chose. He reiterates his authority. Namely, by who he chose. Look in verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. That's going back to verses 1 through 17. I know the ones I have chosen. Now, depending on your translation, you might have a plain Reading something like that. I know the ones I've chosen. But some of the sense of the verbiage here is not just I know who I chose, but I know the type of people that I chose. Jesus was fully aware of the 12 when he chose them. Fully aware. And he says, I know the ones I've chosen in verse 18, but it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He knew Judas' heart, we actually see earlier in the Gospel of John that Jesus says he knows the hearts of all men. John chapter 2. Shortly after the wedding at Cana, where he performs the miracle, and there were people that were becoming more enthusiastic about him. And yet, his ministry was tempered by the fact that he knew what was in the hearts of all men. And certainly he knew what was in the heart of Judas, Unbelief. In John chapter 6... You have Jesus, Jesus having fed the 5,000 earlier in chapter 5. In chapter 6, he starts to teach. And he says things that, that, that clearly upset the people. He's talking about how his body and his blood would be given for them. And how they required that sacrifice. And how people were upset at this. And they left him. And, and Jesus looks to the 12 and says, are you going to leave me as well? There we have Peter proclaiming, where do we go? You have the words of life. We've come to know and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? He says, that's true. But isn't it also true that one of you is a devil? Jesus knew the heart of Judas. And he affirmed to the disciples that his choice wasn't a mistake. Because when they looked back at this scene, most likely, they would have been confused. They would have been really upset. Remember, Jesus is preparing them for the evil that was to come. We read this passage, we know what's going to happen here. We know what Judas is going to do. We know what's going to happen to Jesus. The disciples knew neither. Jesus had predicted multiple times, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to raise from the dead. Jesus had predicted several times, one of you is a devil. Not all of you are clean. But the disciples still weren't connecting those dots. We have the luxury of knowing the end of the story. The disciples, however, were kind of clueless. They didn't know what was coming. Jesus did. And so in love, he's preparing them. And he's preparing them, namely, with the reality that I know who I chose. I didn't mess up. This wasn't a mistake. This wasn't a cosmic error. No, in fact, there's someone in the Old Testament that experienced something similar to me. It was David. Even David's closest friends rose their heel against him David wrote of that in Psalm 41 that's what Jesus quotes but it is as the scripture that may be fulfilled that Jesus was actually playing this similar theme out that sometimes those closest create the greatest pain and not just to Jesus but also to them we'll talk a little bit more about that later So Jesus is preparing the disciples for the evil that was coming by reiterating the authority that he knew who he chose. But he's also reiterating the authority in the circumstances that would follow. You see, in all of what was going on, I don't mean to be irreverent, but I'm going to use a figure of speech. Jesus never takes his hands off the wheel. There's never anything in this story that is outside of Jesus' control. Everything is under control. We see that in verse 20. Or in verse 19. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. You know, as we're looking in the book of John, we often talk about the I am's. This one isn't included, but this is the same verbiage that you may know that I am. Says it in John 6, says it in John 8, says it in John 11. He says it in John 14. But he also says it here, that you may know, after these things have occurred, that you may know that I am. This is a statement of deity. He's God. But in the day that would come, the disciples would experience things, perhaps that they were unprepared for, certainly that they were unprepared for. How can the resurrection of the life die? How is it the one that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? How could he be killed? And, and Judas, how could this happen? You see, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He's preparing them because their world was about to be rocked, spiritually, spiritually. And in love, Jesus is further down the road than they are. And he sees what's going to come and understands how that would be a crisis for their life, a spiritual crisis for their life. And he wants their faith to be preserved. And he wants their mind in those moments, in that crisis, to come back and say, wait, there's truth that governs how I view this. And the truth is, Jesus knew this was going to happen. He's in control, and he's God, even though he had just died. And even though their good friend of the last two to three years showed himself to be someone entirely different than they thought. In our lives, events can shatter faith or they can direct that person to a stronger and more full faith. Jesus telling the disciples about the betrayal. He's telling them about the betrayal here. He's doing this so that their faith in him may not be shattered. Christ was preparing them for crises that were coming, and he was giving them the tools to withstand this crisis. Often, crises test our faith. And God, in those crises, wants us to trust his sovereignty. And in particular, his promises when our faith is tested. Because God gives us promises when he doesn't necessarily give us explanations. I've shared that before. It's not an original thought by mine. It's from a commentary I read on the book of Ecclesiastes. But I have this little quote in my office. God gives us promises when he doesn't necessarily give us explanations. And the disciples had promises. Some of you may have experienced a crisis of having a spiritual leader walking away from the faith. Someone that you highly respected. Someone that you had perhaps years of ministry with. Friendship with. And this is where I I, I do want to take a moment to, to make sure that we understand what the Bible says about unbelief and the believing community. Because the Bible is very clear that often unbelief comes from within the believing community. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, John talks about people who went out from us, but they weren't of us. 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter warns the churches about false teachers that had come from within. I mean, even Jesus gave a parable of wheat and chaff and saying the two look an awful lot alike and you may not be able to tell the difference between the two. And Jesus did give the parable of the soils. And in the parable of the soils, there's four different types of situ- there's four different situations, but only one manifests true faith, true life. You have two that look identical to the real thing. They grow up, they sprout up, they have energy, except their roots aren't deep. Or except the circumstances are too severe. And it dies off. Jesus predicted that even amongst the professors of faith, there may be unbelief. And in his love, Jesus was preparing the disciples for them to come to the realization that even amongst them, there was unbelief. What does unbelief look like in the midst of belief? Sometimes it looks identical. Sometimes it affirms the exact same things. I mean, you think when Peter says, back in John chapter 6, remember? Where will we go? He's talking about him and the other 11. Judas is part of that group. And Judas is probably saying, yeah, yeah, we're not going anywhere. All these other people, they left you, but we're going to stay with you. I don't, think Jesus, I don't think Judas got pressured into that. I, I honestly believe that he said that. He certainly said it in a way that the other disciples looked at it and believed him. Sometimes unbelief behaves the same way. Sometimes it affirms the same thing. And as Christians, as those who, as as we profess Jesus Christ as our Savior, sometimes we feel guilty. How did we not see that? Yet Christ speaks of a person's fruit that will be evident, it will be obvious, but it will persevere. And it will sustain. Jesus says, I know whom I've chosen. And yet Jesus, in this moment, understood what the disciples needed even more than wanting to expose who the traitor was. Because you have, you have this... As I read this passage and I think about even what happens modern day, in modern day, we have you know, a, a lot of energy to expose the truth. People need to know what's really true. And there's this energy, and, and, and clearly the disciples are kind of confused. And Jesus, when, when he's talking to Judas, and, and the disciples see him leaving, they're thinking thoughts about him doing a good thing. Jesus wasn't about necessarily saying, okay, everybody. Judas, as he's walking out, that's the guy. When we look at parallel passages of this account, we see the disciples asking, Is it me? Is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray you? Is it me? And then Judas asks, Is it me? And Jesus says, You've spoken. And again, as readers, we think, Well, come on, people, there he is. But the disciples didn't understand that. Maybe it was a quiet conversation. I don't know but there was an ignorance of the disciples that Jesus isn't rebuking. Instead, he's preparing them on the other side of the crisis, which is their brother was really a betrayer. I'm telling you these things so that when they occur, you will know that I am he. I am the real thing. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he would say in the very next passage, John chapter 14. Jesus is demonstrating love in the face of evil by preparing his disciples. And this is a testament to God's sovereignty and our trust in what he says about himself. And frankly, what he says when people fail. People will fail you but Christ is still on his throne. But I don't want to stop there. Because if we look at this passage simply from the standpoint of, man, there's unbelievers out there. Man, those unbelievers. I know I'm going to get hurt sometime. God protect me. No. If one of the disciples could go along and live along and acclimate and play the part, then I think what we also need to see is perhaps where are we in this story? So not only does Jesus demonstrate his love by preparing the disciples, Jesus also responds to evil in his presence by demonstrating mercy. Mercy. By demonstrating mercy. He has love for his disciples in preparing them for what was to come. But he also responds to evil by demonstrating mercy. We see him responding to evil, not just evil that's to come, but we see him responding to evil that's right in his presence. And we see Jesus acting in mercy, first of all, by how he physically responds. Look in verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, "Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me." This word here, he became troubled in spirit. We see it back in John chapter 11 when Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus. He's troubled. He's hurting. We see it in John chapter 12 when he thinks about his own impending death and he's troubled, he's hurting. You see, Jesus was hurt by the betrayal of his friend. I believe this is why he quotes Psalm chapter 41, because of the personal nature of the hurt, because of the fact that his close friend, his close companion, was acting in the form of a traitor and was betraying him, was putting the knife in his back. From this context, Jesus was not just troubled about the impact, but it was all on him. But was also troubled on the impact that it would have on the disciples. As I said before, the disciples had no clue who would betray Jesus. We see that in verse twenty-two. The disciples began looking at each other, at a loss to know which one he was speaking. Okay, so if you've ever seen like a Hollywood version of the life of Jesus. And they show the disciples, like, walking through the desert or going through the town. Judas is always lagging behind, like, sulking. You know, it's kind of obvious who Judas is. Have you ever noticed that? Like, like he's all, I mean, just scowling the entire time. You know, it's like, come on, guys, how could you not pick it out? Everybody else is, ah, oh, and then there he is, you know, I get it. You know, we're trying to figure, you know, they want to show who is. That was not the way Judas was. In this moment, when Jesus is explicit, one of you will betray me, the disciples weren't all like, I think it's him. They didn't know. They didn't know. In fact, in parallel accounts, they were asking if it was themselves Lord, is it me? Matthew chapter 26. Lord, is it me? And so, so Peter, you know, goes to the one that Jesus loved. This is the way John described himself. He says, ask him. And when John asks him, Jesus doesn't say, and the one who will betray me is Judas. No, he has a private conversation with John. He says, it's the one that I'm giving this bread to. Now, Jesus, in his ministry demonstrates mercy to Judas both by what he did but then also what he didn't do what Jesus did Jesus treated Judas as he would have any other disciple he allows him to participate right when you're reading the accounts of all the disciples and their activities Judas is part of all that Judas didn't like skip the major things when Jesus sends out the 70 to go preach and teach Judas was probably part of that. Judas is included in all of this. All the while, Jesus knows Judas' heart. He enables him to serve. He gives him leadership status. I mean, we have here Judas functioning as the treasurer. I don't know how he got that position, but clearly it was one that was of respect amongst the disciples. It's not as if the twelve kind of talked amongst themselves, and, okay, Jesus, we're going to make Judas the the, the treasurer. He's going to have the bag. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You don't know this guy like I know him. Jesus permitted it. He's entrusted with money, even though he embezzled. We learn that in John chapter 12. And as I said before, Jesus, as he's washing the feet, he stops, and he washes Judas's as well. Jesus had a close relationship with Judas. And Jesus Jesus did not keep Judas at arm's length, nor did he act awkwardly around him. To the disciples, Judas was treated the same way the rest of the disciples were. And publicly, he showed him favor. Even in this action, from a cultural standpoint, when Jesus hands the bread to him. I mean, from a, a cultural standpoint, this would have been an act of one friend to the next. In fact, if Jesus is handing him the bread, it speaks to their proximity And again, from a cultural standpoint, if you're the host, the people you like the best are closest to you. So the disciples would have had no reason to believe that Jesus viewed Judas any differently than any of them. And again, this is an act of Jesus' love and what he afforded Judas. But also we see Jesus' mercy in what Jesus didn't do. Like I said before, Jesus didn't explicitly out Judas, didn't openly condemn him in front of all the disciples, didn't kick him out of the twelve. No, in this moment, what we see from Jesus is love without anger and love without fear. We see hurt at what Judas would do. And we see love that is willing to wash the feet for one's enemies. And so as we look at Jesus as the example of love in this, we must look at Judas through Jesus' eyes as well. Yes, what he did was great evil. But to look at Judas through Jesus' eyes was to grieve not only for the betrayal, but also for what would be the final hours of Judas' life as well. This was the last day of Jesus' earthly life. This was most likely the last day of Judas' life as well. In a few short hours, Judas would proceed from the presence of God incarnate, sitting at the same table as Jesus of Nazareth. Sitting at the same table, having had three years, I believe, of face-to-face, person-to-person relationship that was perfect. If there were ever any issues with Jesus, it was on Judas, not Jesus. What kind of relationship would that have been? And in 24 hours, Judas would go from dining with them to eternity in torment. Think of that. From being at the table to being in eternity of torment. Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 13, says he loved them until the end. I really believe that includes Judas too. (coughs) Love incarnate. And when we think about our responsibility as disciple makers and we think about perhaps the sins that upset us the most, they aren't abstract. There are people that do these things and those people are going to spend somewhere forever. And when we are rightfully discouraged, hurt, by some of the evil that we see? Should we also not see the souls that are going to spend somewhere forever? And Jesus, knowing that he would be betrayed, knowing that his close friend would raise his heel against him, saw him, not simply through the lens of betrayal, but through the sense of hurt and through the sense of love this was it. You see, as angry as Jesus could have been against Judas, he loved him. There's a song that we sing. It's called For the Sake of His Name. And the last verse of that song talks about those that, that we pray for. And it goes something like this. Some for whose souls we pray will join our song that day. Proclaiming new life For the sake of his name, we are praying for souls to come to Christ, people that we know, and we're praying that they will come to Christ. But in the meantime, sometimes they do things that sinners do. But when we know those people, isn't it a little bit different than just kind of an abstraction? Not to make sin less sinful. But to have it be more personal. That this person's attempt at trying to get the most out of life is actually sending them to an eternity of hell. And instead of seeing this abstract group of bad people, no, I actually know that person. And yeah, they're doing that, and it's not right, but I love them. And what they think is going to bring them joy, or what they think is going to satisfy them, is actually sending them to an eternity in hell. Isn't there a difference in perspective when our perspective shifts? Not calling sin okay, but seeing individual souls holding on to their sin and rejecting Jesus. This is the picture of love that Jesus manifests to his disciples. This is the picture of love that Jesus would manifest to us. And as I close, and I say this with love, but we must look also at this passage with a mirror. If Judas were a member of Grace Church of Mentor, he might be an elder or deacon. he certainly would look the part of spiritual maturity. How can we guard ourselves against what theologians call apostasy? Not simply hypocrisy, but apostasy. Walking away from the faith. How can we guard ourselves? I think this passage speaks to two things, but at least two things. That we should ask ourselves, so that if you profess the name of Jesus Christ, you can guard yourself. You can, as 2 Corinthians thirteen five says, test yourselves to see whether or not you're in the household of faith. First of all, how do you respond when you are confronted with your sin? How do you respond when you are confronted with your sin? You know what would have been an awesome way to have the story go is if Jesus says one of you is going to betray me and 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 Judas says that's me I am so sorry I am the one I am the man he didn't do that and he's responsible for not doing that but Jesus in John 6 Jesus in John 13 earlier in the conversation He's he's saying this in front of the disciples, and and Judas is still alive. Judas wasn't acting against his nature. How do you respond when you are confronted with sin? How do I respond when I'm confronted with sin? This might be a silly way of of, um, illustrating it, but so... This is the time of the year when leaves change colors, right, and, and I've been given glasses that help me see colors. For those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm colorblind, I see color, but reds are really dull, and, and it's, it's, you know, whatever. And so I've been given a pair of glasses that help me see reds and greens more vividly, differently. And, and one of the things I see really differently now is the grass, because for the life of me, the grass looks orange, like Cleveland Browns helmet orange. It just does. It's not like I fell and hit my head one day and, whoa, everything changed. No, it's just always been that way. Okay? But when I put these glasses on, I, it actually looks green. You say, how, does you, how do you know it looks green? Because crayons have writing on them. It's say like green. And I can hold a crayon. It's like, yeah, it looks like that. It's good. Okay? So when I put these glasses on, I can see these colors. At least what they're supposed to be. Now, when I take the glasses off, the grass is orange. If you got a whole room of you that said, hey, what color is the grass? And you see it as green. That's not going to change the way I see things. What has to change is my eyes. What has to change is me. And sometimes when we have God's word or God's people speak into our lives and say, this is true. This is true. This is sin. We say, no, 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 no. No. How do we respond? And listen, this doesn't happen often amongst the body of Christ where people just kind of go up and boom. No. But when it does happen, how do you respond when you're confronted with your sin? And a second way I think, a second thing that we should should think about as we guard against this, as we think of ourselves, as we see Judas, is how do I approach? How do you approach the body of Christ? Do you approach it in an opportunistic way, or do you approach it in a foot-washing way? And here's what I mean by opportunistic way. An opportunistic way would be looking at the body of Christ and seeing what is it that benefits me. What can I get out of this? Judas clearly saw following Jesus as a way of making money. He saw it with Mary when she anointed Jesus' hair and says, Hey, couldn't we use this to like, give it to the poor? But John says, No, no, no. He had the bag. He took from it. And basically he was greedy. He saw an opportunity to sell Jesus to make some money. For him, following Jesus was an opportunity for finance." for an opportunity to make money. And we don't necessarily approach the body of Christ in the same way, but we can approach being with one another in the church from different ways. Like, maybe you just have a certain desire to lead. Maybe you have a certain desire to use your talents. All those things are good things. Maybe you desire, you've had experience in your past. and, And so here's a group that, man, if they really just understood what expertise you can bring to the table... They would be on board. And so we come to the body of Christ. How can I get what I'd like or what I want? And sometimes when we approach things that way, we hear the word no. And so closely related to this is how do we hear the word no? Because in some ways Judas heard the word no and it wasn't enough for him. This wasn't a heavy-handed note. It was Judas just wasn't getting whatever it is he thought he should get. (laughs) Following Jesus and being a foot washer wasn't his approach. No, it was taking advantage of the opportunities. What we see in true followers of Jesus is a desire to love God, a desire to love one another, and to persevere in those things, even when we don't get our way. We adults can throw temper tantrums too. We might not be as unsophisticated as the child in the department store, you know, swirling on the ground, okay, yelling, screaming. But we can make it known when we don't get our way. And what Christ modeled for us and what was a stark contrast in Judas was this mentality of footwashing of loving. Okay. So I, I want to ask this question because I think it's appropriate. But I want to first of all address our leadership here. And that is leadership. Elders, deacons, teachers of the word, Are you born again? Don't let the ties and coats and pageantry fool you. Are you born again? I ask that question because, again, we look at Judas and and we see someone who gave all of the outside signs yet inwardly was in it for himself. And the Bible tells us to test ourselves and to test our faith. I had, and I say this, I'll show this and I close. Um, As I was preparing for ministry, I went to seminary, and I had a professor. And this professor, um, while I was taking his class, had a heart attack. And uh, this heart attack really... um, it debilitated him, debilitated him enough to where his retirement had to come earlier than what he was planning. And so in retiring, he had taught at that seminary almost as long as I had been alive. And we were talking, and this was the type of, of professor that would teach the content, but would get off on a rabbit trail and just kind of talk about whatever, and those are the best, you know. Um, so so on, one po- on one particular time, he, he was talking about his own assurance of salvation. And he made this statement. He said, You know, if you were to ask me if I know I'm saved, I would tell you I'm 99.9% sure. It's like if I were to die today, I know I'm saved. But I don't know what my future is. And in his context, he was in an environment where he was teaching the Bible, he was surrounded by the Bible, and he was you know, involved, and he's a seminary professor, he's being asked to teach at all of these places but then that was coming to an end and now he was going to live a life of retirement which consisted of being a member of a local church maybe helping teaching periodically but certainly not not having the rigor or not having the the titles that he used to have he said I'm 99.9% sure I'm saved but I have to persevere and as a Christian when we see this when we see Judas I hope We don't wag our fingers and say, ah. But that we genuinely look at our own lives and say, Lord, help me to persevere. May I be true to what it is that you've promised me. May I be true in obedience. And Lord, may I continue in this until the day I breathe my last. May this be an encouragement but a warning as well within the body of Christ okay Judas is more than just a cautionary tale Judas was someone that was real and he spent eternity he's spending eternity apart from Christ may they that not be us and not in a condescending way but a humble and a loving way Okay, let's pray father thank you God, we are, we are uh, treading on sacred ground. Lord, my heart is not to scare anyone out of their assurance. To be sure. Lord, you desire through your word for us to know that we have eternal life. You desire us to be confident that he who began a good work in us will perform it until the day of his appearing. Lord, you desire us To resonate with the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That those you've chosen, you will preserve and nothing can pluck us out of your hand. So Lord, as we as professing in Christ, as we live this, may we grow in our commitment to it. As that song says, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Father, may we grow in our love and our commitment to you and in particular for one another as we look to help build one another up in their faith. Lord, this isn't just looking in the mirror and seeing ourselves. This is looking in the mirror and seeing ourselves as a local body of believers and our role in one another's lives as we seek to honor you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord for your love for us. In Christ's name, amen.